0: Well, 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 if it isn't my Waterproofians back for another Waterproof Records with Jacob Givens, it is I, your fearless host. I am fearless. Today I'm fearless because we're going to be tackling An album that probably so many metal purists out there will give me so much shit for, but I don't care because it's an important album to me and we're going to tackle it. So uh, I'm glad you've tuned in. If you came in today and you're like, why is he doing this one? Well, I'll get to that. Or if you're coming in on this one and you're going, I am so excited he's doing this one. I have to cover it. It's super important to my life, to my youth, to my upbringing, and just really informed a lot of my musical choices in life. I've talked about it here and there before, but this time around, we are going to get into a classic a 1991 album, The Black Album by Metallica. Oh, I did that the wrong way around. I'm supposed to say it's time to talk about The Black Album by Metallica. Let's go. you are going to change up waterproof with Jacob I'm pretty ready and excited for this one I hope you are too and I hope that um, if you've never been a fan that maybe this is the episode where you're like all right I'll give it a chance or if you're some of the people that just at the beginning you saw that i was covering the black album and i wasn't going all the way back to justice for all or master of puppets or ride the lightning or kill them all and i wasn't starting there and you're like why not well we're going to get into that but before we get into that we've got to talk about my sponsor distrokid if you guys don't already know, you should be definitely checking out my special link, distrokid.com slash VIP waterproof, and you're going to get yourself that 30% off for your first full year of uploading your songs. Um, but I talked about it on the last episode, and I'll tell you again, DistroKid has an iOS app. Key features, sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account using Apple's in-app purchase, or sign in an existing one with two... Factor authentication, it says 2FA here, and I'm lucky that my brain was able to grab it quick enough. You can upload new releases, you can see your DistroKid bank and withdraw earnings, you can get notified when you've earned royalties and withdraw from the app via push notifications. Um, So many features that you need to be taking advantage of. I love DistroKid, I can't wait to be using the app on my phone and make it so much easier when I release more music later this year, which yes, I'm working on. So once again, check my bio, check my link tree, Distrokid.com slash VIP slash waterproof. Um, but now we're gonna get into the nitty gritty. And the nitty gritty here today is Metallica and the black album. Yeah! I wore my shirt for those that watch the show. I actually don't have a Metallica shirt. Isn't that insane? I need to have a Metallica shirt. I have on today, I have the the skull hands, the skeleton hand doing the uh the horns, the rock horns, and it's got a little guitar neck on it. I love this shirt. I felt like it was the most metal up your ass type visual that I could bring today for my Metallica episode. Um, it's funny that I don't have a Metallica t-shirt because I absolutely should have one by now. Um, but it it goes all the way back to my childhood and just how strict my mom and dad were about that kind of clothing. I didn't really have a lot of band shirts. I had some Smashing Pumpkin shirts by the time I was in eighth or ninth grade, because they were, you know, they weren't anything that my mom thought was, you know, creepy or weird. I think I had a Pearl Jam shirt, I had a Soundgarden shirt, um, but when it came to Metallica, a lot of that heavy metal imagery that was just too much, you know, God forbid it was Slayer or Testament or Pantera, but Metallica, you know, they had these iconic shirts. If you've seen my Metallica TikTok or Instagram video where I'm reacting to one, that was such an early video for me. Um, because I knew I had to talk about Metallica way, 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 way early on and making videos about albums that were impactful. Because everybody who listens to this show knows that Siamese Dream is one of the most important albums to me. But before I got onto the Smashing Pumpkins you know, track and went down that road... I would say for a little while there, Metallica and Megadeth were probably the biggest bands in my universe for a solid year and a half, you know, in that like 1991 to 1992, 90, 92 and a half, um, right around the time that Nirvana's coming in, and but it was a really, really big band for me, and uh, I chose the Black Album because it came out on August 12th, 1991, And that is so many of the albums that we're talking about here on the show in that era that this is such an impressionable time in my life. And while Metallica is different from Grunge and Alternative, they were still very much influencing each other at the time. You know, these were groups that were all experiencing a lot of success or exposure on MTV. And I mean, in the... Famous, uh, Allison Chains unplugged. Metallica shows up in the audience to watch them play, and uh, you know that's the famous story about why the bass say why the bassist bass said why uh, friends don't let friends get haircuts. It's because Metallica had famously cut their hair short, such a shocking move at the time. Um, but that's where that whole thing came from because these bands knew each other. They were proud of each other. They were influenced. Um, by each other. And I'll I'll get into that even more as we get into the Black Album. But I'm going to need you, you Gen Xers who are older than me, who are Metallica purists. And you'll say, you'll say Black Album is when they sold out or Black Album is when it started to go downhill. I know that those that are older than me or into a lot of metal bands that you'll, you'll argue and you'll say, you know, Black Album isn't good. I'm, I'm here to say I disagree. Um, it was a starting point for a lot of people my age um, at the time. It was a great transition. And a lot of artists at the time were incredibly excited for Metallica that they got through, that they broke through. Um, you know, I think it was the drummer of Anthrax who said in an interview, he was like, Watching the success of the Black Album was like having your older brother go to college and he ends up becoming Bill Gates. That was the quote that I read. And that's how it felt for a lot of them. It's like didn't just go to college, but he like went to college and dominated everything and ended up becoming like the biggest act in the world. Um, My exposure to Metallica was probably on the one video on Headbangers Ball that's what I made the TikTok about, is watching the one video. And even though Injustice for All came out in 87, um, I don't think that video made it onto MTV. It, I, I'm not 100% sure of the date, but it might have been 1989 um, because Metallica famously didn't ever want to do music videos. And then they did do this incredibly dark, long music video with Johnny Got His Gun and the footage from the, the war movie. And that's what I made my TikTok about, right? I'm sitting there on the floor... I'm watching Headbangers Ball with my brother. And I remember this so vividly because this is the first time that we'd ever seen James Hetfield in this kind of, it was black and white, but they had almost like, it was like a hue to it. Like in my mind, in my memory, it almost had like a greenish, faded black and white. And, um, you know, James Hetfield had this goatee. And I remember my brother and I thinking his goatee looked funny in the video, like kind of sparse. And uh, we were laughing about that in our very asinine, childlike ways. And then there was this, you know, this disturbing music video of SOS, help me, you know, all the footage from Johnny Got His Gun. If you've never seen the video, it's just so dark. Um, it's from this movie about a, a guy who's in war and he steps on a landmine and he loses his arms, his legs, his sight, his, he can't speak. He's just laying on this bed. And he sings about it in the song, and it's so messed up. And here I am, a little kid, just watching this video, just mouth open. And it's the the double bass of the drum, which would just wasn't very common in more mainstream metal at the time. I, I think that a lot of metalheads would come forward and be like, there were other people doing it, but Lars Ulrich, having that song really connect with people, and us hearing that double bass like that, it was uh, it was really a first for a lot of us to hear that sound and just having the riff drive with it. I think it stayed with everybody forever um, because I've seen symphonic versions of one. I've seen all these interpretations of it. And obviously in metal, the double bass has gotten out of control. Like the, the ability and skill the drummers can do now with their feet and make that just sound like a completely seamless rattle And I don't mean like the studio tricks that make it sound fast. I'm talking about the real gifted drummers. Um, You know, uh, Joey Jordanson from Slipknot, RIP. Just so many drummers that can just make it sound completely easy um, to to hit that double bass. But it was really the first of its kind in some ways, at least in my experience. All I can say is my experience. Um, But I started out by saying... I want you Gen Xers older than me to just let go for a little bit. Just let go and go with me on the fact that the Black Album could have some value in the conversation. Because I saw the one video. I thought it was awesome, I thought it was cool, I thought it was scary, I thought it was depressing. And then I don't think I had much other exposure to Metallica other than an older cousin you know, giving me a copy of Master of Puppets and Ride the Lightning. I think those were the first two that I got my hands on right around the time that the Black Album is getting close to coming out. And Fade Black I thought was amazing. Sanitarium I thought was amazing. And that was what my young years were being able to kind of start taking in, as these songs that started out slower and then the solos built. And they were really influencing how bad I wanted to play guitar. You've heard me talk about with other interviews about the album that got me to wanna to start playing guitar and that was listening to Kirk Hammett play. Um, I was strongly influenced by his skills and abilities on the guitar and so I would listen to those songs and I was really moved by just the guitar work on those albums. And along comes Inner Sandman and that song has been played a million times over. It's almost you know had as much repetition as Smells Like Teen Spirit as one of those songs that just got played to death. But if you can go back and think about the first time you sat down and you saw the music video for Enter Sandman and you get to that prayer, you know, now I lay me down to sleep and the whole sequence, the, the giant semi-truck driving through that bed on the, on the highway, I mean, I can remember being so excited about this album and about that song you know, going to school dances and getting the DJ to play Enter Sandman. And then you and your your little, you know, tiny little friends go up and try to mosh each other at the school dance while all the popular kids would watch, watch us from a distance and be like, what are they doing? What are those weirdos doing? You know, we had this, we had Smells Like Teen Spirit. It was all just part of this exciting energy to um, let that aggression out. It wasn't like you were going to be at a school dance and they were going to play, you know, something and they were going to play For Whom the Bell Tolls. You weren't going to get that, but you were going to get Inner Sandman because it was on the radio. It was on MTV. So these, you know, junior high, middle school dances, they would play these songs that you get so excited about. And I remember being excited about it. And a cool thing about Inner Sandman to tell you a little bit uh, a history about that song there's been a lot written about Metallica. They have tons of biographies. There's tons of documentaries. You, you probably can digest just about anything you want to know. So I'm not going to hit you with too many facts today as much as I'm going to hit you with my experience. Because I think that there's a lot of you out there that will remember what it was like and, and maybe enjoy this process. Um, it was one of the first songs written for the album with the last lyrics written for the album. The initial concept for the riff and the guitar part was Soundgarden-inspired. Kirk Hammett had been listening to some Soundgarden and was really feeling driven to use that riff, that that style. Uh, you know. And now you can hear it, and you're like, okay, that's got that Kim Thale touch to it. So he was inspired by that. That's another example of the grunge kind of sneaking its way into the metal community and then it was originally he played the riff two times through and i think it was Lars was like make it four really drive it home and then the song starts to come together and there's this whole part uh, of uh, of Kirk Hammett's like wind down after the solo before we get into the paradise wow <laughs> that was he confessed years later he said that was um it was heart Uh, magic man, magic man, I think. And it was, it was that it was a part of the guitar in that song, but it wasn't from their version. It was taken from Ice-T had sampled it in this song off of his power album. And Kirk Hammett heard that, that guitar sound that Ice-T had sampled and was like, Ooh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to use that. That's a really great kind of wind down from the solo. So he put it in inner Sandman. So the original lyrics that James Hetfield is working on for Inner Sandman are about crib death, yeah, really dark, um, and that is uh, Sids, you know, as they as they call it, and so he he was writing lyrics about this incredibly dark subject matter, and right away Bob Rock, who produced the album. Um, and Lars are like, eh, you know, really encouraged him to revisit those lyrics and try to find something else to write about, because, I mean, they probably had an instinct that that was a, uh, don't know. I mean, look, there was a lot of dark subject material in other albums before this, but there was just something that they had as an instinct that they just didn't like the lyrics. They didn't like what was going and it pissed James Hetfield off. He, he did not like that when he heard it at first. You know, because he was kind of like, I write the I write the lyrics, but it challenged him. And so much of the writing of this album, if you've ever seen any of the behind the scenes of their time recording the Black Album, it was stressful. I remember I digested so much Metallica stuff. You know what I mean? Like I would watch the big set, the live shit, Binge and Purge. I would watch the documentaries. I would watch the videos. I would watch the behind the scenes. And I just remember seeing how tense and stressful this entire experience was with Bob Rock. And then there was the documentary years later, Some Kind of Monster, and just the tension. And you learned that it was a really tense recording process for the band because they spent eight months, and they all were recording together in one room, and they hadn't done that before. You know, Bob Rock was challenging them to try new things, to build a vibe, to build an energy. And when you think about where they were as a band at this time, they were just wanting to try something new, and they just didn't quite know how to do it. Um, So anyway, back to Sandman. So James Hetfield eventually near the end, uh, the last lyrics to write, he kind of does this more mild-mannered version on the Sandman lore. Um, And he had written down Enter Sandman as the song title. And Lars Ulrich, uh, growing up in Denmark, didn't even know what a Sandman was, didn't know the lore at all. Um, but he ended up dialing it back and making it much more, much more accessible, which is, makes it what the, the hit song that it is now. And, uh, the prayer in the middle, I believe that was Bob rock and his son went in and recorded the prayer and then showed it to James and he liked it. And so, um, so that ended up in the song, but the rest is history. I mean, inner Sandman, you kidding me? You still hear that opening guitar part. And all these years later, you know, geez, we're on, 32 years later, and it still stirs up something, even though we've heard it a lot. Um, stirs up a, a feeling of a, of a time in my life of hearing Inner Sandman at school dances and moshing. Um, did you guys do that? Did you mosh at your school dance? I hope so. The moshing changed. Boy, oh boy, did it change. The moshing in the early 90s, mid-90s, was very different and it was kind of like slamming against each other that's what it did I'll never forget when I saw a mosh pit in like the early 2000s somewhere and I saw these people windmilling their arms and I was like what are they doing what is that and someone's like they're moshing and I was like that is not how you mosh <laughs> it was something that was really confusing to me because it just was not part of the mosh pit culture of you know, when I grew up, we weren't flailing our arms around. We were just slamming into each other, you know. You know what I mean when I say windmilling. I'm talking about like that that spinning of arms. Um Anyway, but I mean, it became a thing for the kids that would grow up in the early 2000s. And now when I go to, I go see metal shows all the time. I don't know if I've ever told you that on the show. But I go see, you know, I go see Black Dahlia Murder. I went and saw... Um, Jeez, who did I just? Get? I went to the Chaos and Carnage tour. Um, I saw, jeez, oh my gosh, Dying Fetus and Suicide Silence was there. I didn't get a stay for them, but I've been to Summer Slaughter. I've been to like three years of Summer Slaughter. I've seen Meshuggah, Code Orange. I've seen, um, oh my gosh, I have an extensive list of metal bands that I've seen over the years, and uh, I love metal. I'm a huge metal head. Carnifex. Um, Rivers of Nihil, you know, some of these, Amon Amarth, um, um, Arch Enemy, so many. I've probably seen like 40 or 50 metal bands because I go to those ones where they play, you know, um, like 20 bands during a seven, eight hour period of time. But Black Dahlia Murder is one of my all time favorites, R.I.P. Trevor. But I've never seen Metallica live, and that's crazy to me. I've been a fan since easily 90, 91, and I've never seen them play live, and I'm hoping so much that, that that I get to see them this time around. I know they're touring on this new album, 72 Seasons, and I really do like the sound of a lot of the songs on the album. I think it really returns to their their roots. The riffage is like more in a standard tuning, which you just don't hear that in metal as much anymore. It's got a lot more in E and A. And these driving riffs that are higher, you know, than the uh, the really deep low tune stuff that you're hearing now from metal. But um, I really want to see them play live because I just don't know how many more years they're going to be going on tour. It seem like they got a lot of energy still for um, the age that they're at, which I'm not saying they're too old. But I'm just saying it's, you know, time adds up and it probably gets a lot harder to tour, um, more grueling on the body. But uh, but anyway, I I cannot believe I haven't seen them. But I was saying that because I was saying I've seen live shows, a lot of live metal shows, and uh, there's just something about the energy of getting out there. And I don't have the courage to do a mosh pit anymore. Not, I mean, look, the last couple metal shows I was at, I saw the pit going crazy, and I just hung back because um, I was like, I'm not I'm not going to throw out my shoulder. I'm not going to hurt myself really bad because there's you know there's a lot of young drunk people in there and people that get a little crazy in the pit. Um, but I will say that metalheads are some of the nicest people you'll ever meet in your life. If you've never been to a heavy metal show, I always tell this to people. I'm like, whether you think that it's scary sounding music or evil, or like the black clothes and the, the evil artwork or whatever, the, every metal show I go to, the crowd, the fan, fans base are kind. They're friendly. They're like really gentle in the way that they pass by you. There's not a lot of aggression. The aggression is in that in that mosh pit, in that, you know, when you want to do that. But everybody else is really friendly and really kind. And that people who aren't into the heavy metal scene are always surprised to hear that. But I think it's because if you're ever into a kind of music that's maligned or frowned upon by the majority of the world, you're kind of alone in a lot of these interests and likes. And so you're you know it's one of those things that you like and you enjoy and the majority of people don't enjoy and so when you all get together you're like hey we're all we're all we're all male heads you know <laughs> so i don't know that's been my experience so far but back to the black album um some of the cool things about uh this album also so they have got into this new idea that they're gonna they're gonna try something new um Metallica Puris, I know Kill Em All is great. I know Ride the Lightning is great. I know Master of Puppets is great. In Justice for All, mixed feelings. I actually, out there on vinyl, I own Master of Puppets and Ride the Lightning on a newly pressed vinyl, a new release. Um, I'd still like to get a Justice, a Black, and Kill Em All. I need to get those as well because they are all great albums. People have mixed feelings about Justice for All, and even the band themselves don't really like it. You know the lack of base, which is the the joke that is done to death. Anytime you do anything about justice for all, all you'll get it's like you could set your you could set your watch to it. The jokes about the lack of base. I mean, I guess it's just to be expected in this like kind of meme culture that we live in now. You just that people cannot resist like oh the base the base. Um, but it's not a new or original angle. It's it's been it's been said it's been said many many times before. Um, but justice for all is an album that even James and Kirk and, and Lars, all of them, they were like, wow, we really went to, we went to proggy, went too long on those songs. They were super long, uh, super long songs. And then when they would play them live, they would just feel this like, wow, we really, really went way too long. on a lot of these, they would see the crowd and the audience, kind of, you know, lose interest or lose focus with just such a long song and all the places that it has to go, which is some of the appeal of Justice For All, you know, one, come on, one. But I guess maybe it's just the repetition of having so many in a row. But here we've got this band that really is one thing, and then Cliff Burton dies, and then that's why Justice For All is just kind of not quite succinct and sharp enough. You know, once Cliff is gone, Um, from the band once he dies and they they're bassless, then they've got to figure out how to record that album and they they do the album then they bring in jason newstead and um he's the new bass player but he doesn't really get any involvement on justice but this album he gets involvement and uh they knew going into it they wanted a different sound and so they they find out that bob rock at the time is known for producing Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood, which is like, at the time, it is known that that is one of the best quality recordings out there, just the sound, the tone, everything. So they know that he's recorded that one. He's recorded in Aerosmith, I think Permanent Vacation. He's recorded these big albums. Metallica's not necessarily a fan of what Bob Rock is working on as a producer, but they're at least thinking to themselves, let's get him as a as somebody to mix the album. So they approach him they ask him to do it and he gets approached at the same time by richie sambora from bon jovi and uh he's got to make a decision do i help my my pal richie sambora do his first album or do i do metallica and he agrees to do metallica but he says i don't want to just mix it i want to produce it and the clash between the members of this band and bob rock are you know, world famous. Everybody knows that just the arguments and the difficulty that they went through while recording in the studio is so well-documented. You can see the fights. You've heard the stories about how Bob Rock called James Hetfield Dr. No because he said no to things before Bob was even finishing a sentence. Um, So much pushback, so much conflict. And I think even when the recording was done, Lars and Bob didn't speak for like a year didn't even talk to each other until everybody had calmed down. Um, but then he went on to help him produce Load, Reload, St. Anger. So obviously they formed some kind of trust and friendship with him through all of it. But that, that eight-month period of time, incredibly stressful, um, lots of infighting. But it really challenges and pushes the man to try different things. Uh, the next song on the album, Sad But True. When the band brings that to Bob Rock and shows him that, you know, it's the original version that they came with was in standard tuning, just tuned up to E. And he was the one who was like, we got to we got to go lower. Uh, The band was no strangers to to lower tunings. They had played, you know, previous albums with lower tunings, but he pushed him to do the drop D. And that that really gives that fullness, that heaviness to Sad But True that I think it needed. So in that regard, I think he was 100% right. I mean, he was right about a lot of things on this album. But um, this is actually it's funny that I just said that because the next thing is Holier Than Thou. That's the third track on the album. Bob wanted that to be the single to go with. And James and everybody else in the band were kind of like, that song's dumb. Uh, it's kind of a silly, stupid song. and And it's funny because when you read things from the members of the band after this you read how many of them are like yeah that song's not that great and this song's not that great and that they weren't that happy with it but um but there's just the when they got it right on this album they got it right and i i i remember listening to this album front and back over and over again i remember buying it with the black all black cover i mean who could forget that metallica came out with an all-black cover. It wasn't all black, there was the snake, the coiled snake in the bottom right, and the Metallica in the left. But back then, I don't know if my eyes were poor or something, but I, I swear you could barely see it. I feel like in later releases, I feel like you can tilt it a certain way and you can see it, but on those old cassette tapes, it was really hard to see that there was anything there. It kind of looked just black when you looked at it, and then you would tilt it a certain side, and you go, oh, there's a snake there, and there's the Metallica logo. The story behind that black cover, which was um, it's funny because Spinal Tap had done it in their movie. Um, They landed on that because I guess Lars was flipping through a um, heavy metal magazine and he was going through the heavy metal magazine. And there was all these, you know, cartoon characters that were being used, this like gruesome artwork and skeletons and skulls and Vic from Megadeth. And. You know, all the the anthrax and the the uh, Iron Maiden and all the bands at the time were doing all these colorful things. And he just was like, we need to get we need to get as far away from this as possible. We need to be simple and clear, and none of this, none of these, you know, looks and feel to our music. And so it was just decided let's do, let's do Solid black. You know, it's called Metallica. We call it the black album now, but it was just called Metallica. And, you know, this is their fifth studio album. And I think they thought about talking, they were gonna call it Five. Um, that was one of the names, and then the dumbest name that they joked about. I don't even know if it was in all seriousness. They joked about calling it Married to Metal. And this is kind of sad, but apparently Jason, Kirk, and Lars were all going through a divorces while they were recording. This album. They were all going through divorces. So they joked, Well, we're married to metal. And so that was like a joke in the studio. And so it was I kicked around for a little bit to be called Married to Metal. Thank God they didn't call it that. That's like what a what a title. Oof. But um yeah, they were all going through divorces at the time. And uh and so they ended up just you know, keeping it clean and simple. And I don't know if you remember, but there was like a documentary about Metallica touring and they even did a bit with spinal tap where the spinal tap like calls out like, Hey, we our album in our, uh, you know, we had our album that was in all black, which was a bit in the spinal tap movie. Um, and I think they totally chalked it up to being like a a funny coincidence, you know, something that, that, that also happened for them. Um, the the uh, so that was the cover with the snake, the coiled snake, the don't tread on me st- snake, which is from that seventeen hundreds, you know, American Revolution flag. Um, and there's, of course, a song on here called Don't Tread on Me. One thing I wanted to say, because I've been talking about Jason Newstead, who's not in the band anymore. But I remember thinking that dude was the coolest I really really loved the era that Jason Newsted was in Metallica. And I think it's unfortunate that they parted ways and I don't think it was good. I don't know much about that. So, um I don't think it was a good parting of ways. But he had such a coolness about him. And by the way, this is no this is not me um shit talking Robert Trujillo. I think he's awesome. I think he's a great bass player. You know, I remember first seeing Robert Trujillo like in Infectious Grooves and You know, coming from that whole suicidal tendencies corner of uh, of musicians and seeing him get into Metallica, I was actually pretty excited that they found him. And I think he's a great addition to the band, and I think he's been a a great part of the band for the past, geez, it's been, what, 25 years he's been in the band, maybe more? But um, Jason Newstead had this coolness about him with that long hair and those shaved sides. I remember thinking that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen, um, back then, it was like anytime I saw a guy with long hair and shaved sides, I was like, "Does it get any cooler than that?" You know, Corey Glover from Living Color and uh, Mike Patton and Faith No More. Just seeing that shaved side, the long hair, I just like, man, that's what I want. I want my hair like that so bad. I wouldn't do it now, but um, I do like having long hair. But uh, we were not allowed to grow our hair long and seeing Jason Newstead like headbang with that long hair going down and just the shaved head on each side I used to watch that in the videos and be like ah oh, it's so cool and then he would headbang, you know his head like this and it would go like in a perfect circle um with his hair around like this with that shave shaved head but I just thought he was so cool and then they would do these live shows and he would get up there on the mic and go hey 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 you know I just thought oh man what a cool guy. I really liked uh, Jason Newstead and what he brought to the band. And that's this is so specific to that season of, the, of them. Uh, so, But again, no one can beat Cliff Burton. So before you come for me and be like, ooh, Cliff was the best. Of course, Cliff was Metallica. Cliff Burton was a tragic loss for this man and a fantastic bass player, so innovative, so creative, and really brought so much to the table that I think we saw once he was gone it was, an, it was a secret ingredient of the band that that got taken away too soon. Um, but, you know, again, I will say that I enjoy listening to Justice for All. Um, and I enjoy the Black Album. I do. I do. I do. I do. This album spawned so many singles. Inner Sandman, The Unforgiven, Wherever I May Roam, Nothing Else Matters. I mean... All of those were music videos that ran during this time and making them just one of the biggest bands in the world. I think that the Black Album is is in the history of music. It is one of the highest top selling albums in the world. I think it broke records for being 10 years consecutively on the billboard. Um, It's one of the biggest metal albums of all time. And metal purists will say, well, it's just not heavy. It loses the thrash sound. And you're right. You're right. It became way more accessible. It became way more digestible. But I'm going to tell you right now, for us in seventh grade, moshing at our school dances, it was still heavy. You know, I wasn't sitting next to girls in school who were just suddenly into Metallica. It was still not the norm. Sure, we the the us us nerds and and uncool kids like to march to it, and you older kids with your metal up your ass T-shirts and your ride the lightning swagger. You were harder. You had your popped jean jacket collars and you were walking around with your cigarettes and your Trans Am. You were straight up Billy from Stranger Things. I get it, I get it. You were tough. You were against the man. The lyrics were, you know political, and just against just the atrocities of the world, and this was like Metallica going emo, you know, James Hetfield was writing internally looking lyrics on this album, and that was just like, what, emotional, we're gonna get emotional, Metallica, and you know what, nothing else matters, that wasn't even supposed to be on the album, James Hetfield had written it while they were on the road about a girlfriend he had written a love song to a girlfriend, and he wasn't even planning on putting it on the album. And then he shows it to everybody, and they're like, wow, that's pretty great. We should put it on the album. Kirk Hammett was a little, uh, you know, weary. I think he even said he was like, oh, my God, James wrote a song to his girlfriend. Like, ugh, we're going to put that up. You know, so it took a minute for everybody to come around. But think about how huge that song is. What a big deal it is. It was famously the song that if you were just learning how to play guitar, the thing that we all did with Nothing Else Matters is it's, you know, it's it's the open low string and then the top three, you know, and you pick without holding anything on the fret. Sorry, my E G B E. Sorry, you know, got to list off the, the notes and you pick them open without putting anything on the fretboard. And and when you were learning guitar at this time, which I was, I got my first guitar in 1991 for Christmas. And it was like the first thing that you could be like, hey, you want to learn how to play Nothing Else Matters? Um, there's been countless parodies and videos made about that. Um, but anyway, it was a song that wasn't supposed to be on the album. And then it ends up being on the album. And it's huge. Um, I don't even think Kirk Hammett plays on the song. I think famously he does not play on the song. And this is an example of one of the songs on the album that James Hetfield really sings, you know, uses his singing voice. And this is kind of opens the door for him as a more vocal performer. And if you didn't know, he is shown Chris Isaac's music during this time, like Wicked Game and that music. And he's like, he turns to Bob Rock and he's like, how do I sing like that? How do I sing like that? And Bob Rock's like, well, you don't double your vocals. You don't do double tracks, you do a single track so I can really hear the nuances of your voice. And then we just need to get you comfortable and relaxed and really work together, and that is what was implemented for songs like The Unforgiven and Nothing Else Matters, just teaching him to have a much more calm, relaxed performance with his voice, and it works. You know, he he does a great job on those and really takes a step back and even though he wrote the song, he was fearful about this being on um, the Black Album. The, the album itself was played live. There was a, 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 a release party, if you will, where it played at Madison Square Garden for thousands of people. Not The band not playing, just the album. Thousands of people are there. And James Hetfield is said to have been listening and so nervous, just afraid, that Nothing Else Matters was going to start playing and that everybody would just like start rioting and that they would just be losing their minds and just ridiculing him for doing this ballad. But people responded to it really, really well. I read this somewhere. I don't know if it's true, but someone said that Kurt Cobain from Nirvana was at Madison Square Garden that night listening to the release of um, the Black Album, of this album, so... I didn't fact check it. So if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but that's the story, and I'm sticking to it. I'm sticking to it. Um, Wherever I May Roam, that video, The Unforgiven. I just made a video the other day about these videos. You know, The Unforgiven was like this art house video, it was like a little small movie. I think they premiered it in November of 91 with like an 11 minute film version where you didn't even see the band playing in the footage at all it was just like a like a short film with the music and then they tapered it back to the six six and a half minute version that has footage of the band and that's the video that ran but I I have so many memories of watching that video of this you know this kid he crawls through the tunnel he gets into this little space and you figure out you're like oh the kid's blind I think he's blind and he's collecting all these trinkets in this room and then he's trying to carve his way out and then um and then you know he grows old and then by the time he finally gets the block out he can't you know he dies in the floor so these are all you know something that you could look at philosophically at looking at how somebody looks at life and what the purpose of life is and there's a lot of things you could apply to it once you have a much more world awareness and understanding of existence but i'm 13 at the time 12 13 years old And uh, I am like, whoa, cool video, you know? Wow, what a great short film. Definitely influenced how I look at filmmaking, you know? It had such a cool black and white texture with blurred out edges and lines. There was definitely things that I saw while I was watching that video that I was like, wow, that's a really interesting technique that I would see in David Lynch films or I would see in something else. And music videos back on MTV back then, The really good ones, the ones that had those big budgets, there was some amazing kind of storytelling and short film work in those. And The Unforgiven was great. The Wherever I May Roam video, that was just live footage of them on tour. And for a guy who's never seen Metallica live, that is like the most, uh, that's me living vicariously through that video. That's what I imagine seeing Metallica was like, you know, uh, during that era. This is also the time that they're touring extensively on the Black Album. And, you know, you see wherever it may roam. And this is the tour that James Hetfield accidentally steps in front of some pyrotechnics and ends up giving himself third degree burns up his body, you know, up his arms and legs and um, really dangerous. He was walking was like 12 foot flame. This was the tour with Guns N' Roses and Metallica. And he walks into this pyrotechnic flame and burns himself and. He ends up being okay, but for the for the remainder of the tour, I think he doesn't get to play guitar and he has to, you know, be in a rap and he can sing, but he can't play guitar until his arm heals. But that was a big thing. I remember Kurt Loder coming on MTV News and be like, you know, James Hetfield of Metallica walked into a Pyrotechnic. Which if you didn't know, that is a megadeth bass line on MTV News right there. That is um that is a famous. It's P cells, right? <laughs> I'm not crazy, am I? It's P cells. Yeah, it's the P cells uh, baseline. Anyway, anyway, we're, we're gosh, we've been going for so long now. We've been talking for a while. This is such a fun album. You guys know what's so funny is that normally when I choose an album, I'm gonna do, um, because I mean I have guests, but then I choose my own albums, and there's so many exciting ones coming. I have so many more. Trust me. I have tons that you've been asking for some that you haven't been asking for. But when this came to me that I was going to talk about the Black Album, I was like, of course, I'm going to talk about the Black Album. Of course, I'm going to talk about it because I didn't even have to read up that much on this. Mostly, I have a good understanding of the history of these albums and I do a little refresher, like kind of study up on it. But for this one, I mean, honestly, like I said before the Smashing Pumpkins Love, I was Metallica obsessed. So I knew Bob Rock, The Studio Time, Kirk Hammett, Jason Newstead, James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich. I knew this band. I watched so much. I used to sit there with my buddy Brian and we would hold our guitars and we would watch videos of Kirk Hammett and, and watch videos of Dave Mustaine and Marty Friedman and Megadeth and Metallica. And we used to just want to like learn how to play guitar by osmosis through the television. We wanted their skills and abilities to just come to our fingertips. And I used to sit there and practice Hammett's solos. you know, his, his, And on this album, the wah, the wah-wah pedal. Boy, it's everywhere. Um, so it's not like I can go through every single song and tell a story about it. Um, of Wolf and Man, Bob Rock was like, why are we singing about a wolf, was on the fence about that, then came around. My Friend of Misery and The Struggle Within, those were songs that the band stopped playing live for like 25 years. Um, and then they just, you know, I think it was sometime in the mid-2000s, they decided to start, you know, 2012 or something like that. They started playing them live again, but they'd stopped for the longest time. But honestly, the the standout tracks in this became... Uh, singles i do love the struggle within i love my friend of misery i love the god that failed um of wolf and man i remember thinking that one was kind of funny too you know shape shift. uh back to the meaning back to the meaning of life uh nothing else matters great song through the never's great don't tread on me don't tread on me is all right um but anyway this this whole thing man it's just a classic album, and and uh, I could geek out just as much about Master of Puppets and Ride the Lightning and Kill 'em All. Um, those are all so great, but I would I would really dig in deeper after this. Um, I mentioned up top that you know my cousin had given me or somebody had given me a copy of Master of Puppets and Ride the Lightning on a dubbed cassette, and so I definitely had listened to those before this came out. And I was into them, but once this came out, I became even more obsessed with Metallica, and I would just go back and listen to them over and over and over again. And it wasn't really until, um, you know, Nirvana drops in '92. Um, No, wait, '91, '91. They drop in '91, and I get they I get the cassette tape that Christmas, and it's like in '92 where I start to transition a little bit away from Metallica and Megadeth and Testament and Pantera. And I start moving more into the alternative and the grunge and the pumpkins and Pearl Jam. And I move a little bit away from it. And it took me a while to kind of come back. But as an adult now, I still love listening to, um, to these albums. They bring back a lot of good memories. And if you've been with me since the beginning, if you've been with waterproof records since the very beginning, this whole thing goes back to my friend, Ryan Demarest, who died um, in the uh, the spring of 2021. And when I made that Nirvana TikTok in my backyard, I was really still in mourning of his death. You know, he was 10 years younger than me. And uh, Metallica was a big one for us. It was a big one. I remember the weekend that he died. I sat there and just... Cranked Metallica and I had several like sobbing moments because I thought about how much I missed a Friend that you could geek out about Metallica with because you can geek out about Metallica with with friends It's a it's definitely one of those bands that you can really get into I've talked to people that are younger than me seven eight nine ten years younger than me and they don't get it They don't get Metallica at all. They're like I don't understand It's just not that heavy It's just not that cool. It's just not that groundbreaking. And I think it's just, I mean, it's that, just that little bit of time where other artists are going to start coming in and using what Metallica taught them. You know, like Metallica really set the stage for so many of the bands that would come later. That of course, if by the time you get to, you know, Load and Reload and Sane Anger in that era, you know, we're getting to the later 90s. There's so many more and more bands that MTV and radio is bringing to the service that are trying new things. And then the whole new metal thing comes. It's like all of these artists, if you were to grab them and say like, hey, do you love Metallica? They would all be like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? I had Metallica posters. I had Metallica T-shirts. They would love it. But if you didn't, if you didn't catch it in that era I can understand how it just doesn't connect or I mean, I'm hopeful that if there's anybody who listens to the show, who's a teenager um, and is checking out Metallica now, they're like, it's amazing. And they find the, the, um, the talent and the skill and ability of that band and just their staying power, you know, I mean, God, a band that started in 1981, you know, and we're talking about an album that they would make 10 years into their career. This is their fifth album. You know the black album is, and I mean, God, this one that they just re- released, seventy-two seasons. These guys are still writing songs, riffing, and playing. And there's been so many jokes made about Lars Ulrich. I know that there's jokes about him as a drummer, and then of course he got the uh, he got all that shit for the Napster attacks. And you know, I, I I've had my fair share of ribs against uh, against Lars, but um. A lot of fond memories of, uh, of Metallica, and I really do hope I get a chance to see them play live. I think it would be absolutely incredible. So if you are um, somebody who's a few years older than me and you're, you're dismissive, I, I, because I say this because when I've made stuff about the Black Album or said anything about it online, I inevitably get comments that are like, that's when it went downhill. That's when they sold out. That's when it got soft. That's when they lost their thrash edge. And I'd say in some part, you are correct. You are correct. That was definitely the turning point for Metallica where they were no longer this heavy metal band that you listen to in your bedroom, um, angry and nobody understood. And if anybody heard the the screeching vocals and the uh, thrash, they'd be like, oh, turn that down. And then the Black Album becomes radio friendly, right? It becomes MTV friendly, becomes accessible. And that was a turning point. But I, I think this made a big difference for me in my life, and I'm sure it did for a lot of you out there. I'm sure a lot of people out there, for as much as this album sold, you can think back about listening to this and, uh, and whatever it was, whether you were in your room and you were head banging or you were angry over something that happened at school and you cranked up your Metallica or... This album, like for me, opened the door to going back and listening to even more Metallica. Just getting so into all the things they're putting out there. Begging your mom to grow your hair long. I literally bought a BC Rich Warlock, which is a guitar that kind of spikes out in all the edges right there. I had a BC Rich Warlock because I wanted to look like I was in Metallica. I couldn't afford you know, the classic James Hetfield look to the guitar, but I remember being in a guitar store and thinking, I want that because I wanted to look heavy. You know, I wanted to look like I was in a metal band. Oh, young Jacob. But that's it. That's it. I think we've talked for a hot minute here about everything. I hope I've been recording. I have. Oh, thank goodness. I can't even begin to tell you guys that one time I was doing the show and, um, I was not, the microphone was not on. It was recording on the laptop, and I I got done, and I was like, you've got to be getting me all the funs and joys of uh, recording a podcast at your home in your free time. But anyway, thank you guys for joining me. Thank you, my waterproofians, for yet another fun one. I felt like I really geeked out this time around. Like, my brain was going a million miles a minute, so I know I was a little scattered as I talked through, but I hope you had fun And you'll you'll go and listen to the album or if you never give the album time, go give it some time. See what you think. But um, this was a lot of fun. It made me smile to reminisce and think about especially uh, doing the mosh pit and my school dances. So that's another episode of Waterproof Records for the books. Um don't forget to check out distrokid.com/vip/waterproof for your 30% off of your first year. And don't forget I um I know I talked about switching merch stores but I haven't done it yet. I signed up for this other company and I find uh that it's, you know, not as easy as I thought to switch stores. So I still have my bonfire merch store. Um, if you go to my link tree on any of my pages on my Instagram on my TikTok, in there are my Spotify playlists, my merch, um, you know, the YouTube channel, my movie, other things that you guys can check out if you're interested in, but um, I'm so grateful. This podcast is growing. It's getting bigger. It's been pretty exciting to watch to see how many more listeners are coming in, and I'm getting you from all around the world. I've seen some countries um, all over the place that are tuning in and listening, and I'm so grateful to have you here um, there's more guests on the horizon I wasn't able to secure any for this uh, the, the, this few weeks but I've got more coming soon but thank you again I can't do this without you I love you rock on I'll see you next time on Waterproof Records things are gonna change I feel it you that kind of fun Hotter,